Hey everyone, welcome again to Sanctuary. My name is Andrew Mook. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I've been thinking a lot over the last couple weeks what I should share. We've been in this series called Hearing God, talking about prayer. Um, we rightfully interrupted that season or that series to talk a bit about all that's happening in the world. Uh, we've been uh, inviting all these different guest speakers to come and speak into our community uh, about what it means to do justice and walk humbly with God. Uh, the intersection, like Rashad shared last week, of prayer and engagement in the things of the kingdom. And, uh, and so as I kept thinking, what, what is the thing that I'm supposed to share kind of as we are still very live in this moment, this passage kept coming up. And it's a story uh, that involves the early church. So a guy named Paul and his crew who are planting these outposts, starting these outposts of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And it involves uh, a city uh, that is, um, is centered on a particular way of being in the world. Uh, an ideology, a system that revolves around this goddess Artemis. And so I don't have a ton of funny stories. Actually, I don't think I have any funny stories for you today. Um, this is a, is a charge to our church to, again, do what um, the church has done throughout the centuries and what we as a community over the last seven to eight years have done, which is pause to wait on God to ask him what it means to join him in what he's doing right now, to engage our prophetic imagination. And so my hope is that uh, this passage and this message is just a spark for us. So with all that, let me pray for us and, uh, and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we have been praying every week since we started broadcasting a Sunday service that you would give us open eyes and open hearts to hear what you're doing more than ever, Lord. We have this sense that um, you are inviting us um, to join you in some profound ways. Profound in the, in the simple things and profound in, in maybe some big things. That you are inviting us to, to wait on you to move and that we would follow your lead. You're inviting us to not get out in front of you. You're inviting us to be a, a voice um, of hope for our world from a place of rest in you. And so I pray that um, my just simple words, Lord, and, and, and your word, Lord, would bring encouragement to people today. Um, would challenge, would provoke, uh, would move us, Lord, um, into who you're calling us to be right now as a family. Pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, hope you said it. Hope you said it. Acts 19, uh, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is what these first followers of Jesus were called. They were named the way, the church. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, Artemis is a goddess, uh, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income in this business. And you've seen here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. 
There is this cult of Artemis that revolves around this goddess. Now, this goddess has all sorts of attributes. Two of my favorite is the goddess. This is the goddess of forest creatures and goddess of the hunt, which makes me think this goddess is slightly conflicted, where she takes in all the, the furry and fuzzy little animals and brings them close. And you see images of Artemis or Diana in the Greek, and like uh, the animals are all huddled around her. And then I just imagine her just taking out a bow and arrow and just like picking them off one by one. I don't know if that's real or not. But in Ephesus, this, the whole system was geared around the cult of Artemis. The cult of Artemis became known uh, as what people call a civil religion. And that's to say the rhythm of life in the city revolved around the temple and its festivals. They believed everything they had comes from Artemis. She is, uh, quote, eternally fertile on your behalf. Uh, and there was even a yearly festival where uh, most historians estimate about a million people would come through to celebrate. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple owned something like 70,000 acres of land. There was this large banking system that developed out of the temple. Uh, and, and it was here in putting your trust in Artemis and the religious system, the complex religious system that had built up around her uh, that your money was safe, that you would have good sex, that you would live a long life, you'd have protection for your kids. There was even uh, a lot of passages about um, you would be uh, safe in childbirth, which is a reference to something else Paul talks about elsewhere in the Bible. Um, everything was intrinsically linked back to Artemis. And so we're told that there arose a great disturbance. There was a glitch in this system. Now, as you can imagine, a whole system of goods that's surrounding the goddess, um, sorry, you can imagine that in a system like this, uh, all of these uh, goods and uh, economics started to arise up um, in, this, in this kind of infrastructure. Like you, would, you could go and buy statues of Artemis as a way to signify your allegiance and dependence. There were, this was a huge trade. Here's a picture right now of actually the statue of Artemis. Millions of statues were sold everywhere you went. Um, There was even a a procession and a parade that took place regularly where people would be led by the temple priests out in and through the city, hailing allegiance to the goddess and holding these uh, artifacts. So just a little context for you, back to the text. Verse 25, he called them all together along with the workers and related trades, and said, so this is the silversmith worker who makes these statues. He said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. You you see how expansive, right, the worship of Artemis is. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So he's accusing Paul of this. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Again, this is a big deal. 
the very center of social and economic life is being threatened. This is not just an account. I think when I first heard this story as someone growing up around the Bible, I used to think it was just like, oh, a few people getting sort of bent out of shape because they were losing a few dollars and because there was a small group of people coming to know Jesus and they were saying idols are bad. Like that's what I reduced this story to. But even just a cursory look at history, we see that's just not the case. It seems this was actually sort of a quiet assault on the very ethos of the city of everything the city was built on. It's a story, an account about a very different way than the way of Artemis. That that one way of being in the world came into conflict with the prevailing way of life in that day. Let's keep reading, verse 28. So when they heard this, when they heard the silversmith's account, when they heard what Paul was doing, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Try it at home, that has a nice ring to it. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized two of um, Paul's, Paul's crew, his disciples, and Paul, Paul, these are Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Uh, you can see right here, this is a rendering of the theater. It sat about 25,000 people. So imagine you are in Paul's crew. You are standing there surrounded by people who get essentially a paycheck. Like they are benefiting from the system that is the Artemis and the cult of Artemis. They are frustrated. They are offended. We find out later they've been chanting for hours. Just place yourself there in the story. We keep reading verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the, prom- of the province, friends of Paul, so he's got friends in the, in, the, in the government, they sent him a message begging him to not go into the theater. The assembly was in confusion, it says in verse 32. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And this is all happening because what you have been saying and how you have been living is undermining a whole way of life. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. There is hysteria. People are just caught up in the great is Artemis chance. They are swept up in the patriotism. They are swept up in the tribalism. They are swept up in the way things have always been in their systems. This obviously doesn't relate at all to our current moment. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence, this is this government official, in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so, sorry, so the city clerk quieted the crowd down and said, fellow Ephesians, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. Like, chill out. We are are still Ephesus and Artemis is still in her temple. Verse 37, you have brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed the goddess. This is huge. All of the lights on your dashboard should be going off. 
These followers of Jesus didn't need to bash anyone else. They didn't need to tear down. They simply asserted that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was the one who who gave life, that their marching orders for how to be fully human and fully alive came from Jesus and not Artemis. That's all that happened. And then this, the official continues, verse 38. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have any grievance against anybody, the courts are open and, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. Like, hey, hold it. See, Rome wasn't completely unsafe yet for Christians. It was in a lot of ways like it is here. Paul had Roman friends who were high ranking. There was all sorts of civility. Rome wasn't really persecuting anyone yet in this region. It was trying to be a cosmopolitan nation. And I say this because we get a picture in the New Testament that the early Christians weren't trying to overthrow or even reform the empire. Yet in no way were they going along with it. They simply demonstrated and announced a different world breaking in in the middle of this one. They seemed to be offering all of the dissatisfied masses a whole new world. Not a better government, but a whole new way to be human. Now let me pause here. They didn't have the levers that we have, a representative government. This raises all sorts of questions about how we are to engage in various aspects of helping provide a just society because we are called to love our neighbor and we can love our neighbor in all sorts of different ways. But do be clear, they were modeling something that holds today, a new community that would then in fact have a massive effect on the system. Now, Martin Luther, he wrote, if you preach the gospel in all aspects, with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. I wanna stop, I wanna read that one more time. If you preach the gospel, so if you preach the good news that Jesus is king and all that flows from that, that Jesus is Lord and thus you've been saved by grace through faith, that his kingdom is in breaking. If you preach the good news that Jesus is on the throne making all things new, with the exception, so if you speak all the aspects of that, with the one exception being the issues that deal specifically with your time, if you try to pull the gospel out of your current context, you are not really preaching the good news at all. This, this was not happening here. It wasn't just an esoteric spiritual religion that Paul was talking about, disconnected from what was happening in the world. See, when we embody the kingdom of God, when we embody the rule and reign of Jesus, when we are gospel-centered truly, it affects everything. These first Christians were not just offering up a generic Jesus's lifestyle blog or like trying to fit Jesus into their current moral and economic systems. They were offering a different way to be. I feel like I gotta stop for a second. Like you've heard me say things like this, church. I'm just speaking to sanctuary, by the way, if you're peering in from elsewhere. We have these conversations a lot. We talk like this a lot. But I need to remind myself, I think why I wanted to go back to this story is like, oh wait, it literally is offering a new way to live. Immediately, what are the things coming up? How am I thinking about my money? How am I thinking about relating to my neighbors? How am I thinking about how I love? How am I thinking about how I order my life? How am I thinking about my political allegiances? This 
changes everything. See, for the first followers of Jesus, no matter where the government was present, no matter what systems were in place, whether it was Artemis or otherwise, the the way they saw what was happening and who they were was in contrast. N.T. Wright summarizes all this like this. He says, Paul's missionary work must be conceived not simply in terms of a traveling evangelist offering people a new religious experience, but as an ambassador for a king in waiting, establishing cells of people loyal to the new king and ordering their lives according to his story and his symbols. So good. So let's summarize all this for a minute. A relatively tolerant society where civil liberties are sort of upheld. A riot is started simply by the church being the church. The church subverts the idols of their day and demonstrates a whole new way to be human. So my question this morning is where have we dulled the subversiveness of the gospel? Where have we sold the gospel short? Where should it, where do we need to be faithful? Because when we are faithful as a community, when we are faithful as a family, it it might feel a bit radical at times. Where are we not willing to submit, to repent, follow the way of Jesus Maybe another question would be, where are the riots? Or you could ask the question this way, where is the disruption? And to be clear, I'm seeing the disruption all over the place. And and in some ways that's a message for another time, just giving thanks for what I'm seeing happen in our community, what I'm seeing happen in parts of the church at large. But we need to keep challenging ourselves. Where is the disruption? Because when we are faithfully living out the way of Jesus, it will naturally disrupt. I gotta say this because some people hear a message like this and they go, yeah, let's go disrupt. Like our goal isn't to create riots. The aim is not to disrupt, but it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen when a way of being in the world comes into contrast with another way of being in the world. It's gonna happen in your social media feeds and it's gonna happen in your dinner tables. It's gonna happen a bit in your bank accounts. It's gonna happen in your family structures and in your rhythms because we will come up against other ways of being human in the world. See, when God shows up, we've been praying a lot about like revival and God like pouring out his spirit in elevated ways. We talk a lot about praying for the, about the kingdom and joining God in the renewal of all things. I, I, that, those pictures and those prayers are not abstract. It's not abstract when God is in a space. The kingdom of God is not abstract. See, this world is not our home, but it is our calling. And we are called to follow Jesus in so loving our world, just like Jesus, God so loved the world and so loving our enemies. Second Corinthians says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, calling the world back home. And we are told that God is making his appeal through us that we are to partner with God in the renewal of all things. It's a labor of love. The disruption is birthed out of love because love disrupts. 
See, love in the way of Jesus is not blind. It is bound. Bound to people who are hurting. Bound even to those who have chosen the way of death. Bound to oppressed and oppressor. And the more bound our love is, the less blind it is. The more we see. And when we see the pain and the ache caused by individuals or caused by systems, we embody the way of Jesus together. We embody the kingdom. We have us some church. Love disrupts. We're at the cleansing of the temple, if you're familiar with the Bible. It was a protest against an unjust system. Jesus overturned tables and said, my house, says Mark 11, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a hideout for the corrupt. So to be clear, Jesus protested unjust systems. And at the same time, Jesus lays down his life for his enemies and calls us to do the same. See, loving in the way of Jesus, loving in the way of Jesus is sadly not on trend. Love is patient and kind and doesn't boast keeps no record of wrongs. I imagine that definition of love will cause some disruption right now because I honestly believe if you allow me to go into this a little bit, there is a spirit of Jonah in the air. If you're new to the scriptures, basically Jonah is a man who is told to go, told by God to be a prophet, to go warn a nation that was headed for disaster, a nation that was oppressing people, not worshiping God, it was a mess. Right, The way they were living was, was not good. And so Jonah reluctantly goes and he goes reluctantly because he hates them. He hates these people. He hates that God's sending them to these people. And guess what? Jonah does go. He ends up doing it after a series of all sorts of fascinating events. And the nation actually listens, which you'd think would be a good thing. You'd think Jonah would be psyched. The nation changes course. This evil nation that was oppressing people changes course. And so God steps in and they don't get what they deserve. And we read in the book of Jonah that to Jonah, it says, quote, this all seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you were a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah gets all emo on us. The nation is essentially canceled by one of God's prophets, but not by God. The way of God sends prophets to speak truth to evil and power. And the way of God is also slow to anger and abounding in love, wanting everyone to come to know him and the peace and the freedom that he brings. This kind of love disrupts. This kind of love can cause a riot. So let's just agree. Like, let's get canceled for canceling cancel culture together. Like, see, in this moment, our love compels us to fight injustice, disrupt evil in our world, and it calls us to engage in a way that honors the image of God in everybody. Love in the way of Jesus is always embodied, which is a way of saying it takes on flesh and blood and community 
and action and hands and tears and hugs and sometimes protests takes on flesh and blood. This is what was happening in Ephesus. The love of Jesus was embodied. It didn't seek out a riot. We know this, right? The, 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 the official, the clerk says they didn't blaspheme the goddess. They didn't go like looking for a fight. Like some people who want to hear this message and just interpret that like, all right, let's go looking for a fight. Like, no, they, they made it a point to not do that. But it happened anyway because it bumped up against different understandings of love and a different understanding of how the world changes and a different vision of what justice and freedom and peace look like. And right there in that moment, there's like 16 more sermons I wanna give because I am so excited about us. And I pray this happens in our home churches, that happens in spaces all around our community where we begin to ask, what does it look like for us to embody the kingdom in this moment? Because I just want to speak clearly and plainly and we can have some discussions offline if you want, but we cannot put our hope in anything other than Jesus. So in Acts 20, the story begins to end, verse 20, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said, goodbye. Imagine I'm a kid, young guy, young woman, following Paul, a rabbi, experiencing this insanity, all of this. And then Paul, the guy who's setting up this church, our leader, he leaves. Similar to Jesus, right? Because we know presence can prevent empowerment. The whole city wants to kill him, kill them. And Paul has spent his life pouring into them and he leaves in classic rabbinical fashion with essentially saying, you can do it. And 40 to 50 years or so later, 90% of that region claims Jesus as Lord. This is the New York and the Tokyo of their day. This raises all sorts of questions about what is possible. Paul writes to this church then, like later on, after he's left them. And he says in Ephesians 3, verse 20, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Is the same power at work? What's possible? Is the same power at work? What is possible?